Exhausted this week, but we're going to talk about baseball. I was wondering <laughs> on on Thursday that we didn't need to get into what was going on, but I wonder if any work got done anywhere in America. <laughs> I yeah. I don't. I think realistically, it was effectively a day off. I think the people spoke. This is a democracy. People decided we're going to take the day off, and you know, realistically, Friday should be a day off. Long weekend in advance of the playoffs. Anyway, the playoffs do get started in baseball next week, and we were talking about this. And this uh, this episode will go up before the official end of the regular season, but when we have our next podcast, which will be on Monday, then the playoffs will be beginning on Tuesday, if there's not even a mm-hmm. game 163, which is a possibility, I think, still. Yeah, of course, yeah. it's still a possibility. Mm-hmm. So sure. our next podcast will presumably be forward-looking, so this one we will take the opportunity to go backwards-looking and just kind of review the season, the year that was in all of baseball. And the first question I want to put to you, and this is... Of uh, of pertinence at the moment is I've been going back and forth on Jacob Degrom. I think he's, he's clearly the deserving Cy Young winner in the National League. I don't think that's really much of a question. But where do you stand, if you stand anywhere, on Jacob Degrom as the MVP? Because I can't quite figure out what my brain is thinking, but I'm going to try to figure out what it's thinking as as you talk right now. I put you on the spot. <laughs> Well, I will note that Max Scherzer is pretty close to Jacob deGrom, and in most years, I don't think it would be bad to cast a vote for Max Scherzer with this sort of season, and if you look at some stats, it's basically neck and neck, but I think deGrom has the narrative going for him somewhat counterintuitively. I I think I've said before that, in a way, his win-loss record, which is now 10-9, and I kind of wish that he had a a losing or even (laughs) record and would win the Cy Young Award with that, but still not the sort of record you associate with the Cy Young Award winner. I think that actually helps him in that it brings attention to how good he has been and how misleading that record is. And so now it just seems like a, a you know foregone conclusion that he will win that award, and I think he should. As for the MVP, I mean, I'm kind of in the camp of wanting the two to have separate awards and they don't so I would like for there to be an award for the best position player and an award for the best pitcher and if you want an award for the best overall player that would be fine too as currently constituted we have an award for the best pitcher and we don't have an award that is specifically for the best position player although it typically is this year though the gap in value between DeGrom or or the best pitchers in the NL and the best position player, it's pretty wide. So I think even I, who would prefer for the awards to work another way, might say that he's the most deserving player. I mean, as long as pitchers are eligible and we're going for the most valuable player, and I don't personally care all that much about context and teammates and where you are in the standings, I really can't mount a very strong argument against him. 
Right. Uh, now, as far as the, the Sayong is concerned, for whatever it's worth, I know that there are better numbers to look at than this, but DeGrom and Scherzer have thrown nearly as many innings as one another. Scherzer is at three and two-thirds more than DeGrom. DeGrom's thrown 217, Scherzer's at 220.2. Anyway, DeGrom has allowed 48 runs, and Scherzer has allowed 66. That's a pretty substantial That's gap a big difference. to have yeah. to bridge. So yeah, obviously, Scherzer's been absolutely amazing. 300 strikeouts. This I don't care what era we're yeah. in. 300 strikeouts is a lot of strikeouts. But DeGrom, I think, has is, is faced uh, slightly better opponents, I would assume. Haven't looked that up, but I would assume. And also just 18 runs. That's a, mm-hmm. a large, it's a big river to ford. You're you're going to get swept away by the current if you try to ford that river. So when you you take that to the MVP, I, get, I hear the argument a lot that pitchers have their own award. And so the MVP should go to the position players. But the MVP has gone to pitchers before. The precedent mm-hmm. has been set. So... It's clearly not an award, at least I don't think it's been interpreted as an award, that should only go to position players. And it's strange to me. There are a lot of different ways to define value. That is the whole reason why we have this conversation every single year. Every mm-hmm. single year, we have the same conversation. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if anybody's picked up on that. It's identical. <laughs> and we're going to do it again. Yeah. We're not going to settle anything now. But nope. it hasn't. it hasn't been interpreted as a position player only award in history. And I understand wanting them to have separate awards, pitchers and position players. Totally understand it. I wish that they did too. And uh, this is where someone will bring up the Hank Aaron award and look, nobody cares. (laughs) Nobody cares about the other words. (laughs) And I get it. But you can want something, but it doesn't seem to be the system that is set up. And so there's so Mm -hmm. much conversation about what value actually means that it's, it's bizarre to me that we're in a position where people can't even agree on who's eligible for the MVP. And I my perspective is that it's the most valuable player. And player refers mm-hmm. to anyone who's who's on a roster and it should go to anyone. And I, I don't I don't like the idea that pitchers can just straight up be excluded. Like if you were of the opinion that the MVP should go to a player, does that mean that you would not give DeGrom even a tenth place vote? Does he just show up nowhere or is it just like a slight edge that you give to position players? Yeah, I think it's like a tiebreaker. I mean, I think that he is eligible under the current system and so pitchers should be able to win the award. I would prefer Mm -hmm. if each had a separate award and then maybe there were a separate unified award, but that is not the way that it is set up in the way that it has been set up. So yeah, I'm not arguing that he shouldn't win because of that. I I wish we had a system where it would be set up differently, but under the current system, I'd be fine with him winning the MVP award. Right. Okay. So let's, let's accept now and move on from the fact that there are still, there are a number of voters who will presumably dock DeGrom or any pitcher substantially because people just think this should be a position player award, whatever. Mm-hmm. Moving on from there, let's, let's pretend that that, bias didn't exist. Let's pretend that everyone is looked at on an even field. We, I guess we could go over this bit by bit, but people will talk about how a pitcher only goes every five days and a position player only goes goes every single day. Just about now, I think you and I and everyone is on the same page. Like, that's true. But of course, pitchers face a lot of batters in a game and position players do not face the pitchers a whole lot in a single game. It all works out like they, everyone gets hundreds of plate appearances or batters faced. So like the the impacts are similar across the board. So now I'm gonna I'm gonna read a couple of numbers here, just based on I don't know which war to use. I guess we'll go with the, the 50-50 war that Fangraphs has popularized a little bit. I'm not gonna explain that. Just just accept it and move on. So at Fangraphs, the leader in war, and it's the same regardless really what war you're looking at, Jacob deGrom leads the National League. He's at 9.4. He has an advantage of more than a win 
over Max Scherzer in second place, and two and a half wins over Christian Yelich in third place. So that's a big lead for Jacob deGrom in war. Now, if you look at win probability added, you might be inclined to think, well, how high could Jacob deGrom's win probability added be, given that the Mets couldn't like score any runs or give him any support, and he lost a bunch of games or they got no decisions? Well, that's true, but also that means a lot of his games were very close, which means he was pitching yeah. in a lot of high leverage spots. Jacob deGrom, according to win probability added, was 1.3 wins above Max Scherzer in second place, and he was almost two wins above Aaron Nola in third place, and Christian Yelich is behind DeGrom by like two wins by win probability added. That does not, of course, factor in Christian Yelich's defense. It doesn't factor in, I don't know, Matt Carpenter's defense or Javier Baez's defense. Defense isn't a part of it for win probability added for position players and for pitchers. Defense is just everything gets folded into the pitcher's credit. But where we are now, DeGrom pitched in a lot of extremely close games. He pitched exceedingly well. He never allowed more than four runs in a start. He never allowed more than four runs in a start. Every single Rockies yeah. pitcher this season has allowed four runs in every first inning. It's just <laughs> unbelievable. So <laughs> Rockies are good this year. They don't deserve pitching criticism. They no, I understand. But their first innings have been dreadful. After that, though, yeah, they've been, that's they've been true. quite good. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I should I should say incidentally as we're recording this the Rockies are in first place. There's only yes, three are. days of baseball <laughs> left for things to normalize. So this is really yeah. quite incredible. There's there's a reasonable chance the Dodgers could miss the playoffs. Anyway, maybe yeah. we'll talk about that a little later. Where, what mm-hmm. this comes down to, and you have written about championship probability added before, which I like mm-hmm. as a stat. Thank you, Dan Hirsch. Dan Hirsch mm-hmm. comes up in every podcast, just like Williams Estadio, <laughs> who by the way drove in four runs on Thursday, although he also struck out, <laughs> which was too mm-hmm. bad. So what this comes down to is if you accept that pitchers and and position players are equally eligible for the MVP, then it comes down to how much weight do you put on a team's position in the standings? Can you be valuable if you are on a bad team and the Mets are a bad team? Because Mm -hmm. Kristen Yelich is probably the favorite. He's had been so good down the stretch. And I don't know, maybe even Javier Baez would finish in second place at this point. There's some value to his versatility that I don't know if we know how to weight that properly. So mm-hmm. Yelich, go to the playoffs. Baez, go to the playoffs. DeGrom doesn't even remember what the playoffs feel like. <laughs> so what does that matter? And I was trying to think about this on, on Thursday night, whether what what is the point of the regular season? Is it is the only point to make the playoffs or is the point to try to give yourself as much of a chance to win in any single given game? Because if the point is just to win as many games as possible and every single game is viewed in isolation, then I think that you have to consider DeGrom the rightful winner because he has done more to improve his team's chances of winning every time he's been on the field than anybody else in the National League. And yeah, that the team isn't going anywhere, but I'm not convinced that everything is just about the playoffs, but I am, I'm not so wedded to this position that I couldn't be uh, convinced by a compelling Ben Lindbergh answer to the contrary. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think perception wise, the regular season used to be everything because that was everything for almost all teams. I mean, you had the world series and that was it. There were no playoffs. And so what you did in the regular season determined how your season was perceived and, and it should frankly, because it's the more telling indicator of the quality of your team and how you can sustain performance over six months. And the playoffs are totally different and prioritize different aspects of 
team building and also I think we all acknowledge that it's largely random and doesn't tell you all that much about team talent and so we've all decided that that's okay that it's fun and that we really enjoy it and it's a tournament and that's okay but also I think if a team doesn't you know, do well in the playoffs, then it is perceived to have been a failure, even if it had an incredible regular season, which really is not fair, I think. I mean, if the Red Sox go in and get swept in the ALDS or something, they will be perceived to have been disappointing, I think, when in reality they won more games than any Red Sox team has ever won in the regular season, and that is really impressive. So, I do think that in general, we are underrating the regular season these days, but for award voting, I don't know. I mean, if you interpret value in a way that precludes anyone from winning if their team doesn't make the playoffs, I do not share that opinion, but I understand Mm -hmm. that opinion. I mean, it is one interpretation and one fair interpretation of value. It's not the best player award, as we always say. And if you said it's the best player award, that would resolve some of these disputes, I think. But I'm sure that the BBWAA is happy to have these disputes every year because, hey, free columns and free podcast discussions. So that's how we end up with this year after year. But, you know, I wouldn't object to Yelich winning the award either. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, this is this is this distills down to the same conversation that takes place every year. Usually it's a built around Mike Trout, which I guess this year it could again be built around Mike yeah. Trout because he's got just as strong a case as Mookie Betts. Although, mm-hmm. well, that's I don't know, maybe we'll have that conversation later. But value can be taken to such an extreme that if you're going to talk about who is more valuable to a team based on performance, then do you also consider what that player costs? Christian Yelich just costs very little. Jacob DeCrom I guess I don't know these salaries off the top of my head, but, you know, there's there are salary concerns that you also can take into account. And I just when you start folding in things that go beyond just how a player did on the field, then it gets like absurdly Mm -hmm. complicated where you can say that the most valuable player in any league is a player who did the best while making the league minimum salary, because that's just an unbelievable amount of flexibility. And I'm not sure that you can do anything to I'm not even convinced that's the wrong perspective to take, but I don't think anybody wants an award on that because I I don't think anyone wants to include salary considerations when they're having this conversation but mm-hmm. I don't know I I haven't made up my mind and I I am coming to the conclusion that it's actually impossible to make up one's mind on what this mm-hmm. is supposed to be which is maybe the intent or maybe it's just a, a happy coincidence because it does lend itself to the same conversations over and over and over again because let's face it if you put out any MVP article you link it on Twitter then regardless of your position as long as you take one then you're going to get one of two kinds of people who one of three kinds of people I guess who are mad at you one MVP should has to come from a winner or the MVP has to be the best player or the MVP should be a position player because pitchers already have their own award etc even though by the way Shohei Otani could win the Cy Young even though he's only half a pitcher so there's some lines being blurred here or maybe Matt Davidson mm-hmm. in 2019 so I don't think there will ever come a day when voter opinion has consolidated around this so that mm-hmm. it points in one direction and then at that point I don't know. I don't know what we are deciding on when we get the votes. Because if like half of the voter pool, if if a third of the voter pool is like it's got to be a position player, and a third of the voter pool is like, well, it's it's got to be a player who was on a playoff team, and a third of the voter pool is, well, it's got to be the best player. Then what the hell is the result? <laughs> and I don't, yeah. I don't know. Right. I don't know what it's worth <laughs> at that point. If we're not all voting on the same thing, then I just don't understand what the point is. 
Yeah, no, you're right. You can't look at the voting results and say, well, the writers thought that this guy was just better than that guy, which you'd Mm -hmm. think that this would be about, but it's not that. But maybe it's for the best that it's not that because that would be an increasingly easy argument in this era when we have things quantified better than we used to. Although even then, it's not always easy because you have different versions of war and Mm -hmm. different ways to, you know, especially with pitching value, how do you measure that and what do you prioritize and what data do you use? So even there, you'd think that there would be a clear-cut answer, and there isn't. And so this continues to defy a simple response. And so <laughs> I look forward to talking about this with you in uh, 2019. We can I set mean, our calendars same day. In the, in the same way that the, this is this is the same conversation, and in, in, in the same way that this distills to the same points, you can say that you you would wish, ideally, that pitchers had their own award and position players had their own award. But if you think about if you want to think like what did the founders intend when they were creating baseball awards and they were like handed down from a mountain chiseled into rock slates, mm-hmm. then you would think that the MVP would be intended to go to the best player. Does it not make the most sense that there would be a best player award? Wouldn't it be weird if the award yeah. didn't exist for the mm-hmm. best player? So given yeah. that, I think one reasonable interpretation, and now I know maybe you could call this like voter activism or something on the baseball voter part, but you would think that if the intent is presumably to have an award go to the best player, then we should treat it as if it's an award to the best player. And there, you raise the point that you could say, well, maybe maybe that is too easy. Maybe there's not enough of a controversy. Like we have all these advanced numbers and you can go in so many different directions. You could say, oh, well, we'll just vote one through 10 from the war leaderboard. But it's really, it's not that easy at all. And I, no. the the error bars around like a war figure can be pretty significant. What this has really made me think about lately is even if you ignore Jacob deGrom, which by the way, pitcher is very complicated because on the one hand, the Mets have had a bad defense. But on the other hand, it seems like Jacob deGrom hasn't been hurt by his defense. So I don't know what you're supposed to do there. But even on the hitter side, just take, simplify this. Just look at Christian Yelich and Javier Baez. Yelich, I think, is relatively easy to understand. We know how well he's hit, and we have a pretty good idea of how well he's defended because we have good numbers for the outfield. But Baez is legitimately complicated because we know how well he's hit. We don't know quite how well he's fielded because the numbers for infield defenders are not so good. And there is legitimacy in the point that he has covered three premium positions for the Cubs. He's played second base, shortstop, and third base. Yelich is just kind of a corner outfielder who sometimes plays center, which, whatever, that's fine. But Baez has been able to fill in for Addison Russell. He's been able to fill in for Chris Bryant. He's played a a good second base. The Cubs have had more versatility because of him. And I don't know how to value that. And so just based on that alone, even a best player award would still allow for a lot of voter interpretation because there are so many different ways. Like you could make the argument that J.D. Martinez has been more valuable than his war because he's made other players better. You can make that argument and I couldn't even call you wrong. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So even a best player award in this era would still leave a lot of room for nuance and interpretation, which I like. Our numbers are not that precise. And it just it bothers me that every year we have all these different arguments about what we're supposed to be measuring because it just makes me care about the award less. <laughs> yeah. Well, we should probably move on because we have a whole rest of the season to get to. <laughs> oh, Lord. Uh, what else? So uh, Williams SDO struck out. On mm-hmm. Thursday, that was disappointing. I watched it happen. It sucked. Yeah. Uh, I wrote a whole article about Astadio not striking out in the month <laughs> of September. It went up Thursday afternoon within three hours. He had struck out. He also worked mm-hmm. another two, at least two full counts over the course of the day, which 
just it's not at all what Astity was supposed to do. But then he singled in a run. He, I think, he, well, he singled in two runs. He doubled in two runs. He drove in four runs. So Williams Estadio doing well. He's got his own like gifs that the Twins Twitter account tweets out where he's like playing with a mascot or something. So like Estadio clearly has has caught on. Anyway, he's really good. Mm-hmm. Three strikeouts mm-hmm. at this point. Three strikeouts. It's absurd. So uh, I guess we should get to what our intent actually was because we've already now bantered for half an hour on the <laughs> podcast. So I have a few quick things to mention before we do. All right. So first of all, the CC Sabathia thing from Thursday. Mm, I am I'm conflicted about this because on the one hand, I never approve of any player intentionally throwing at any other player. On the other hand, this is the most badass way that you could potentially do that. <laughs> I think in that CC Sabathia, he was two innings away from activating a a clause in his contract that would give him an extra five hundred thousand dollars. And I guess Austin Romine had been hit earlier in the game. And so Sabathia hit the Rays catcher, Jesus Sucre. Usually you see more prominent players involved in this sort of <laughs> ball war. It's just Romine and Sucre. But anyway, he hit him and then he just like grabbed his crotch and like faced the Rays dugout and screamed at them and cursed them out and was gone. And to his credit, like he hit him, what, in the in the legs or something like, it, it, you know, he didn't get up near his head or somewhere where you're very likely to hurt someone seriously. Still, I don't really approve of anyone throwing it anyone at any part of their body because I don't think pitchers command is so precise that necessarily they can control exactly where they hit someone. And if you're trying to hit someone in the butt, I think that probably increases the odds that you hit them in the neck or something. So I think in general, disapprove. But if you're going to do it, I mean, this is the the way to do it, I guess, because like there wasn't even any, you know, oh, I didn't mean to. It slipped. Like, I don't know when the last time was that we saw a pitcher just come out and so clearly acknowledge that he was trying to hit a guy that he you know didn't even have the the weak excuse that everyone sees through so i don't know if i were the yankees i mean this was a a team building gesture this is the way that clubhouses work i'm sure sabathia's decision here was very much appreciated and you'd think the yankees should either just pay him that half a million or put him in for two innings on sunday or something i mean not that sabathia is going to be hurting if he does not get this half a million dollars he has uh, made or will have made about a quarter of a billion dollars by the time this year is over but (laughs) that doesn't mean he doesn't deserve it and uh i don't know this was just a spectacular and explosive way not to make that extra money so tisk tisk cc and yet if guys are going to do it, they should just do it this way, I think. And, you know, yeah. hopefully there will come a, a time where no one does this and, you know, no one hits each other with pitches to send some sort of message. But if you're going to send the message, just send the message instead of just kind of weaseling out of it. Yeah, right. This is an era where I know a lot of people are concerned about teams not giving players as much money as they used to get. But like, if, if the player does something like this of his own volition, then you can't really be too concerned about him making less money. CeCe Sabathia is among the 1% of the 1%. He's doing just fine. I think that his line as he left field looked into the raised dugout and said, that's for you, bitch. That's something yeah. that like he's going to be buried with that line on his headstone. <laughs> it's just it's one of those lines you can't forget. And really, maybe more... So Romine wasn't even hit. He was buzzed. His tower was buzzed earlier okay. in the game. Yeah, the ball didn't uh-huh. make contact with him. And then Sabathia went after Jesus Sucre, which, whatever. I'm not, I'm not really sure anybody would have noticed in a game that was, I think, an 11-run game at the point. 
But I think the image that really sticks with me was Yankees right fielder Aaron Judge confronting the entire Tampa Bay Rays September <laughs> yeah. roster expansion bullpen. <laughs> yeah, who you got in that fight, <laughs> Judge or expanded? I mean, roster yeah, this Rays is bullpen. essentially like <laughs> like what forty human sized horses or like one yeah, horse sized right. human basically. And <laughs> yes, that's exactly what this is, and it's only a shame that they didn't actually take to paddle because then we would have figured something out. But like, what's I guess well. I was going to say, like, what's Sergio Romo going to do to Aaron Judge? But then, you know, Romo might consider himself part of the starters at this point. So I don't even know what's going <laughs> yeah. on with the, the opener. You yeah, got a, all a lot those of... raised pitchers, they're weak from throwing one inning to, <laughs> to open the game all year. So they're not ready for a fight. All right. And then I also wanted just to mention there's a lot we don't know about the story, but Jeff Passan on early Friday morning reported that there is a federal grand jury that is investigating MLB's international dealings and has subpoenaed some officials. And I mean, this we don't really know how deep this goes. It could go extremely deep or we know that it involves Hector Oliveira, who I haven't thought of him for a while, but uh we know for, you know, historically, MLB's international player development system has just been incredibly corrupt. And, you know, teams have from time to time been censured for something. And Capoella with the Braves obviously was banned from baseball for life, which we don't know exactly what he did, I guess, but seemed disproportionate because it kind of seems like everyone is doing something they shouldn't be doing <laughs> over there. And the Red Sox were disciplined for this. And, you know, various officials have been fired over the years for bonus skimming and just you know other ways of exploiting young international players and so now this is actually being investigated and there are FBI agents who were involved here lawyers from the DOJ and I mean I don't know this is something that I would think probably every team is a little bit nervous about right now so I don't know whether this will revamp that system I know MLB has made some efforts to try to get things more on the level but I'm sure Things are very much still corrupt in a lot of ways. So I will be curious to see where this goes. Yeah, because it's still early Friday morning for me on the West Coast. I haven't yet had a chance to read the story. It's in my bookmarks. I'm going to read it after the chat that follows this podcast. But yeah, I, mm-hmm. I agree with you. And when we've seen teams disciplined in the past, we saw the Braves disciplined, saw the uh, the Red Sox disciplined. If you go back a long time, we saw the Jim Bowden of the Athletic.com. He was disciplined for the behavior of him yeah. and his staff. And now that's going back a while. But this is... I don't mean to assume the worst of everyone, but I would assume that every single team is doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. Of course, some mm-hmm. teams are probably doing things that are worse than others. And of course, it's not all the yes. team's responsibility. Some of it is just the people who end up getting involved. Anyway, I can't really put that kind of behavior on Major League Baseball shoulders, even though I suppose they play a role. Anyway, the point here being that everyone, everyone is doing something they shouldn't be doing. This is the talk when the Red Sox got disciplined. All the conversation was about how they were just the team that got cut. Now, the Braves might have gone above and beyond what other teams are doing. I don't really know, but that's the key. I don't really know. And the uh, the federal grand jury is likely to figure some things out. So uh, this is mm-hmm. oftentimes when one team gets penalized, you get fans of rival teams who are just like making fun, saying like, oh, your team shouldn't have been doing whatever they were doing. And look how much <laughs> right. inferior your team is. But like everyone should be sweating a little bit around the collar because this is this is something yeah. that could affect every single team in baseball. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the whole system is set up to encourage this sort of thing, and we'll see if that actually changes. Last thing, I wrote something that is up now at The Ringer re-examining the steroid era in light of the recent revelations about 
ball and its impact on home run rate. I would just encourage people to to go check it out and see what they think. I will link to it in the usual places. But I am really curious about this because, you know, we've all just decided that the steroid era, that is the name for it, steroids must have been responsible for the record-breaking home run totals that we saw and just the league-wide home run totals that we saw. But we've seen just in the past few years that the ball can be entirely responsible for an even higher home run rate than we saw in that era. And we've seen time after time when there's been some dramatic change in offense, it has been because of the ball or because of some change like the strike zone or the mound being lowered. So it would be unprecedented in baseball history for that to have been entirely unrelated to an equipment change or a rule change. It's possible, but I kind of lay out the arguments in the article for why maybe it was the ball all along, or maybe it was partly steroids, or maybe it was, you know, some combination of both. And I think a lot of people have made up their minds on this issue already, but I hope that some people will have an open mind and look back and wonder how much it was the ball. Because the factors that have caused the increase in home runs now, no one was even testing for at the time. No one was looking at the drag on the baseball back in 1993 or 1998 or 2002. So no one knows if the ball was just flying farther for the same reasons that it is today. So it's completely plausible, I think. So have you subpoenaed baseballs from different (laughs) eras in the past and submitted them all for MRI examinations? I have not. One could, and there have been various investigations that have seemed to suggest that there have been differences and there were differences in that period compared to earlier periods, but it's tough because you really have to get a big sample and no one knows exactly how balls might change over time and if it was a game-used ball or it wasn't a game-used ball. So it's hard to do that sort of science on old baseball so I don't know that we will ever get a definitive answer but in my mind it is more of an open question than I think it is in probably a lot of people's minds it's frustrating there's a there's a tendency in this cuts across all stripes that humans will in in the moment when something is going on and maybe there's a variety of explanations then people a lot of people can at least understand that it's a little muddied and there are a few different possible answers for what's going on and you can understand that okay Mm -hmm. there's some nuance here there's some subtleties but as time passes because there's so much more to think about. There's the present day. Then what do you reflect on the past? Then I think it's only natural that we just start to distill around one single explanation and yeah. just the simplest possible explanation for what took place. And so as a lot of time right. has passed, people just think, yeah, steroid era. Everyone calls it the steroid era. Therefore, sure. it must have been steroids. And there's just probably even a closed mindedness to reexamining the question, mm-hmm. which is granted that's right in your headline. That's the whole <laughs> yes. idea. But yeah, it's so much more difficult of a battle to to take on after the fact, certainly so long after the fact, because it's just it's relitigating an era where people think, well, it's just easier for me to say it was steroids. Therefore, mm-hmm. I'm not going to bother. So good luck, Ben. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's the availability heuristic, right? One of the cognitive biases. It's like the the most accessible memory or the thing that stands out the most in your mind. You just attribute everything to that because it's simplest. So, you know, there was a lot going on. There was expansion. There were different ballpark sizes. I don't think either of those was actually responsible, but people were talking about it at the time and not so much because of what we know now. But let's move on to 2018. Well, now that we have like less than 30 <laughs> minutes. Yeah. Well, I we talked about on, on Thursday, privately, we discussed a, a few possible prompts as we reflect on the season. And one just occurred to me, although maybe it's something we should, we should keep this one for when the playoffs are over, I guess. But 
mm-hmm. as Sam has written about at ESPN, they're like the moments that a season is remembered for, you know? Right. And because, uh, again, maybe maybe this is uh, one version of the availability heuristic as long as you're throwing mm-hmm. around scientific buzzwords, which I was unprepared for. Just always have the good <laughs> words for everything. But we will, you know, like Sam had written about like the image of Jose Altuve standing next to Aaron Judge in 2017. And that's just something that sticks out in your memory, even as everything else fades away. So it'll be interesting. And I guess we can we can put a pin in that one for another four or five Mm -hmm. weeks. And then we will probably have an entire podcast dedicated to that. Sorry, Sam, we're going to take your article, turn into a podcast. Maybe we'll have Sam on. (laughs) But yeah, we can have Sam on. Yeah. For this particular episode, I guess let's try to fly through some prompts. So I was thinking... Mm -hmm. Uh, one I was thinking like favorite event, favorite single event, but I don't I don't think favorite is the right word. But like, what is what for you from this entire regular season is like one specific event, one specific play that just stands out in your mind very clearly with that you don't need to think to recall it. It's just like something that you that's just embedded now in mm-hmm. in your brain. What do you got? Yeah, I mean, this is probably cheating, but I was going to go with a week instead of a play, which Mm -hmm. is just Shohei Otani's week in April when he was worth one win above replacement in just one week because he homered in three straight games, including one homer against Corey Kluber, and then he just dominated the A's. It was his second start against them. He went seven scoreless. He gave up one hit. He struck out 12, and it was just demonstration of everything we had thought of for years it's like you know that gif of ron paul like shaking his (laughs) hands and smiling and it says it's happening that Uh was me during that week because it was happening the thing that we had dreamed about and envisioned for years this was the fully operational super weapon that the angels had signed and here we were seeing just on both sides what he could do and you know we didn't get a whole lot of other weeks like that because of the injuries but the talent was there we've talked about Shohei Otani enough but that week I think is just emblazoned on my mind that was the most excited I have been about any individual player performance this year all right that's a pretty good one so I don't have a week I have one play and it's mm-hmm. an Alex Bregman play sort of uh, and it is from April when the Astros were playing the Padres. I have, I might never forget about this. Bottom of the 10th, 0-0 <laughs> game. Do you remember where I am? Yes. 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 <laughs> Bottom of the 10th, no score. The uh, Astros had a runner on second and two outs. And Alex Bregman came up against Phil Maton. And he hit a sky-high pop-up right in front of the plate. <laughs> and Eric Hosmer charged. The Padres infield converged. And the ball dropped. And Derek Fisher scored from second base on a walk-off infield pop-up by Alex Bregman. At this writing, that is the third most valuable play of Alex Bregman's season. The Fangraphs mm-hmm. play log reads, Alex Bregman singled to first, parentheses, fly, close parentheses, Derek Fisher scored. It was worth a WPA of plus 39.4%. Alex Bregman, of course, also uh, responsible for another walk-off win where he reached on an error to the catcher where Jonathan Lucroy threw the ball away down the line. So Alex Bregman... Two of his five most valuable plays this season have been just complete defensive catastrophes. Absolutely no reason for them to have happened. And I was mm-hmm. thinking about this. I, now, I don't think Alex Bregman's going to win the MVP. I don't have a vote for the AL MVP because I think Mookie Betts is a more reasonable case to win the award. But if you were to talk about Alex Bregman as the American League MVP, one argument would be that, well, he has been, his numbers reflect that he has been clutch this season. Mm-hmm. He's been response. He's, be, he's started plays that wound up being clutch for his team. But like, if you have this pop-up, this ridiculous, is there anything more symbolic 
then Eric Hosmer, the Padres' biggest investment that they're ever going to make for as long as they exist, charging in. And it's not all his fault. And sometimes you just lose the ball. It's fine. I don't mm-hmm. hold this against Eric Hosmer too much. But he's just standing there and the ball drops. I think it was behind <laughs> him. And Bregman yeah. wins the game, and then everyone charged. It's just, like the Astros should have come out of the dugout and just circled Eric Hosmer because he is really the player who's responsible for that walk-off <laughs> win. But yeah, like what do you what do you do for value there? Like if you're talking about the MVP and that's a walk-off win, that's like mm-hmm. a, a half of one win basically that Bregman's ball in play gave the Astros in that circumstance. What do you do with that? How much credit <laughs> do you give to Alex Bregman for an out? Right. Yeah, I don't know. Sam tweeted the other day that Bregman has made the last out of a game three times this year, and he has four walk-offs, which uh, I don't have an easy way to check how rare or impressive that is, but seems somewhat impressive. And yeah, that play, I don't know. I mean, if you were going by like expected weighted on base of Alex Bregman's batted ball, it would be extremely low. But uh, in that case, that's not what happened. And you know, have we even, like, talked about Hosmer this year? <laughs> like, we haven't even uh. mentioned him, really. And it's funny because he signed this eight-year contract, one of the biggest free agents, and he has had a sub-replacement level season, according to Fangraphs, and that is so not notable that we haven't talked about it. It was like, well, yeah, <laughs> of course. I mean, <laughs> did anyone expect him to be good? Not really. Like, I mean, we thought he might be you know, decent, but no one thought he was actually good, even though the Padres did. And so the fact that he's been a below league average hitter, not for the first time, and that he's been a sub-replacement level player, not for the first time, not shocking. I guess disappointing because there was some hope at least that he had found a a slightly new level offensively last year, but mm-hmm. no, not at all. So no, yeah, <laughs> not, not anything. And uh, you know, it, it's been easier to ignore because one, Eric Hosmer hasn't been like Chris Davis level bad. And also right. the Padres haven't been anywhere close to the race. So it just hasn't really mattered that much. But yeah, mm-hmm. this it's in the early stages of becoming a disaster. Like I don't think Eric Hosmer has forgotten how to be a good player. God knows he's kind of doing that like, I guess like odd year magic kind of thing, like reverse yeah. San Francisco Giants where he's just gone from replacement level to good to replacement level to good. Doesn't make any sense. He's inspired by Ryan Rayburn, but Something that I guess we'll talk about more in 2019 when the Padres are presumably better and closer to the race. And it's like, well, Eric Hosmer has kind of screwed him because now Will Myers, who they've also made a big investment in, is playing third base. Will Myers, third baseman. <laughs> yeah. And so they just have less flexibility realistically next year. For all I know, Eric Hosmer could be the worst starting player on the Padres. And he will also <laughs> be the most expensive starting player on the Padres. So have fun, Dave Cameron. <laughs> Yeah, trying right. to yep. figure that one out. I will, by the way, Alex Bregman and Wilmer Flores both tied with four walk-offs this season. Uh-huh. And David Bodie right. has three already. David Bodie has three. And uh, just because I'm already here, I will tell you that last year, the league leaders in walk-offs, well, it was Mark Trumbo who also had four. I don't <laughs> care. I'm, not, I'm just going to skip on to the next prompt. So that uh-huh. was the, the favorite event. So as we reflect, I guess, what changed about baseball this year? In what ways did baseball become different that are likely to stick with it? I think there's at least one pretty obvious answer here. Well, is that the bullpen revolution, the ongoing change in bullpen usage? I think that is one thing, right, is that we've seen the opener. We have seen position players pitching at a higher rate than ever before. We've just seen a willingness really to do whatever works in the bullpen, even if it is not what has traditionally been considered the best strategy or a strategy at all. So that seems like it will continue. 
yeah, and that was the answer that I arrived at as well. I'm sure there were more uh, more things to point to, but yeah, I think it's it's the opener. The opener is mm-hmm. one of the ways in which 2018 will be remembered. There's a lot more going on. You can say, oh, the Braves are advanced ahead of schedule, whatever. That's fine. And there are things about individual teams that have changed, and we'll get to that. But yeah, just league-wide, definitely the opener and, and how that is going to change the way teams are already thinking about their their starting rotations. There is there's no going back from this point, not as long as the Rays are eighty eight and seventy one, even despite getting blown out by the Yankees. Mm-hmm. So if we yep. just move on from that prompt then, let's consider what were some some preseason narratives. What were we talking about in March that now I guess look pretty silly? And I will volunteer one <laughs> okay. in spring training. I remember investigating because you and I have both identified that spring training numbers can be indicative of what's likely to happen in the season ahead. And and one thing mm-hmm. that we have not seen happen this year for a variety of reasons is that the home run rate stopped going up. It went back down. Mm-hmm. The home runs, the uh, the whole home run explosion, it's still there. Home runs are still up relative to like five or six years ago, but it's back around like 2015 or 2016 rates. And so for all the mm-hmm. concern that there are just nothing but walks and strikeouts and home runs. The strikeout rate has budged a little bit, not by very much. And the home run rate has gone back down. So for all the concern that baseball is going to be nothing but home runs, it has not happened that way. So that is mm-hmm. uh, that is one preseason narrative that I think we can file away and, and no longer have to worry about. Yeah, I mean, it's still like the, what, second or third highest home run rate ever. <laughs> so it's not like it went way down just, you know, as, as, as far as a percentage of home runs on contact. But yeah, it has not continued to increase unchecked, which we were worried about. So that's true. Although we were worried about, you know, strikeouts continuing to climb. And obviously they have, but that was the easiest prediction you could possibly make about baseball this year I think well people were saying that Shohei Otani wouldn't be able to hit in the big leagues so that was one scouts Mm -hmm. anonymous scouts saying that maybe he wasn't ready for the majors he was like a high school hitter yeah not so much I think that really the big preseason narrative was about the super teams and the fast gulf in the standings between the best teams and the worst teams and whether the season would even be entertaining at all. And I guess kind of a mixed bag on that one. I mean, certainly you did have big differences in some cases. I mean, you have the Red Sox challenging the wins record and the Orioles challenging losses record and a 60 and a half game gap between them. You had the AL pretty much sewn up somewhat early, but you still have chaos in the NL. You have the Nationals not making the playoffs. You have the Dodgers in very real danger of not making the playoffs. You've got the Brewers neck and neck with the Cubs. So I think in the NL, that has really put the lie to the suggestion that there was no hope and faith in baseball or that things were settled before the season started. But, you know, it was all that. It was tanking. It was, will anyone even watch baseball this year? And there has continued to be hand-wringing about attendance, which is down just a a tad over 4%. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind. It perhaps is related to that. Could be a bunch of other things too. But I think it's safe to say that there was something to those concerns but they were a bit overblown. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny thinking about the uh, the tanking. That oh, so much conversation about the free agent market. And the union filed a grievance against the Marlins, the A's, the Pirates, and the Rays for not, I guess, spending enough or not being open with how they were spending. The A's, of course, going to the playoffs. They're thirty three games over five hundred. The Rays 
Most other years would be going to the playoffs. There are 17 games over 500. The Pirates are two games over 500, even though no one's paid attention to them ever since the Chris Archer trade. And then the Marlins are, well, the Marlins are there too. And uh, <laughs> they have basically the opposite record of the A's. So the Marlins were bad, but Marlins were always going to be bad. But the other three teams have been really surprisingly strong, remarkably strong. I shouldn't say surprisingly strong necessarily, but... As for the super team era, and I, that was mm-hmm. another, uh, another point valid to to bring up. I had it in the back of my mind. And before the year, I don't think anyone was wrong to talk about the super teams. But what I think got lost, or at least what was under underestimated, is the vulnerability of any good team in baseball over the course of a full season. Because yeah. we, you can look at the Nationals, and they've just been worse than expected. You can look at the Dodgers, and their wins and losses are worse than expected. Now, their actual performance, you could argue, has actually been quite terrific. They have one of the best like underlying records in all of, of Major League Baseball, but they have been vulnerable because they have just not timed their performance as well. They've just laid it on in low-leverage situations, and they've struggled Last I checked, according to the Fangraphs clutch statistic, the three worst clutch hitters this year have all been Dodgers, and that's just something that's going to drag a team down. And so you you can look at the American League and like the four super teams are all going to the playoffs and they're all the four best teams in the league. But in the National League, I don't think it, the Nationals, yeah, they obviously looked strong and the Dodgers obviously looked strong. I don't think it was wrong to have those teams favored in their divisions, but it means something. No team is that locked into any certain position, not even the Dodgers, because Clutch timing can ruin anything. For example, if the Mariners were in the National League West, they'd be two games behind the Dodgers, and they suck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, or you could talk about teams in the AL Central, what they would, you know, what the Rays would be doing in the AL Central. I mean, they have like the same record as the Indians, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. The Rays are one game behind the Indians, same record as the Dodgers. They're two games ahead of the Mariners, so you can. I don't. This was not an unusual year in teams just performing weirdly. This is just mm-hmm. you, and we might run into this again next year. Whenever the projections come out, we're going to see teams. We're going to see probably pretty wide division gaps in a lot of divisions of baseball, and we're going to say, "Well, looks like there won't be any races." But this year, NL West still has a race. NL Central still has a race. NL East has changed just in the past month or so. The AL West has had the A's. They were in first place not even that long ago. It's just. Even in the AL East, the Red Sox took a little while to pull away from the Yankees. The AL Central, well, whatever. There's no reason to talk <laughs> yeah. about the AL Central. So there were a few more prompts to get to. I don't know how much time we'll have, but I guess if we were going to compare relative to where things were before the year and relative to maybe what we expected to happen by mm-hmm. the end of the year, who's, which team's fortunes are maybe higher or lower now, like not only in the present, but also like long-term vision now, considering maybe what we would have expected six or seven months ago. Well, I think the Rays are up, certainly, not just in the fact that they were good this year and better than really anyone expected, but also the fact that they have a really good farm system now. They made that great trade with the Pirates that seems to set them up well for the future. They just, they seem to be back to having a young core that is there or on the way that you can look forward. And yeah, it's going to be really tough to beat Boston and the Yankees anytime soon, but they seem like they're set up again, which, you know, they never bottomed out or got terrible, but it seemed like maybe they had run out of inspiration or they just weren't developing players or drafting players as well and weren't really, you know, pulling one over on the league the way that they had been able to before. And for one reason or another, they are back to kind of doing that. And there's the opener too. So I think 
them probably. I think the Braves probably. Obviously, they were ahead of the timeline this year. Everyone thought they were getting better, but they have really shown that they've got a great core and it's not just pitchers, it's position players, but the pitchers are pretty talented too. I mean, they look like the best bet to win this division going forward for years to come. And on the downside, I don't know, maybe the White Sox, I guess, just in that they haven't made the sort of progress you would want to see. You know, there was some thought that things might come together really quickly because they did have some high-level prospects or rookies who were already in the majors, and that just hasn't happened. Kopech is hurt. Some guys have gone backward. So there just hasn't been as much progress as you'd want to see there. But I don't know who stands out to you. I I had a hard time with this one. Yeah, I know. It's a little hard. But, like, I I think the Twins have gone backwards. They were supposed to compete this year. But you look this year, they've gotten, like— Next to nothing from Miguel Sano and Byron Buxton. Barrios has been has been just fine, but they're, they're mm-hmm. even like it's this is more subtle. But like Max Kepler hasn't taken the step forward at the plate that I think a lot of people have been expecting him to do. So the Twins just it's been a really disappointing year. Now I think that there's some more legitimate reason to worry about their future, regardless of whether or not they continue to employ Williams Estadio. I think you can look at a team. The Marlins stand. Everyone knew the Marlins were going to be bad. Uh, I think a lot of people figured they would be the worst team at baseball. and But for the Orioles, <laughs> there might be more attention shed on the Marlins. But no one had any expectations for the Marlins this year, and, and they were bad right away. But for me, sort of a – I don't know if canary in the coal mine is the right expression here, but I was I figured so much of the Marlins season for me was going to come down to the performance of Lewis Brinson, who currently, as I speak, has a war of negative one, has a WRC yeah. plus of 57 He's got 30% strikeouts, 4% walks. Lewis Brinson has shown a few signs, I guess, of of being better than this. But I figured Lu- Brinson was the big guy of all the pieces they got. They traded Marcel Azuna. They traded Christian Yelich. They traded D. Gordon. They traded Giancarlo Stanton. And, like, whatever. Starlin Castro has been fine. Who cares? They got Lewis Brinson. He was the best player they got in any trade. They gave up Christian Yelich. And, obviously, we can't go back and say they should have known Yelich would be so much better and this would all happen. But that trade looks terrible now for the Marlins because Brinson has been bad. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Ozuna trade, you know the only Marlins position player who's been worse than Lewis Brinson is Magnera Sierra, who has a war of negative (laughs) 1.4 and a WRC plus of, I'm not lying here, 20. 20. Yeah. He uh, he has an isolated power of .014. He's got zero home runs. So Brinson has been very bad. Sierra has been very bad. I know like Brian Anderson's been a fine everyday player. And I know that there have been like a few minor pitching developments like Trevor Richards has an interesting changeup and Caleb Smith, whatever, then he got hurt. But the Marlins, even though I know it's a rebuild, even though I know this is just like the first year they've really been committed to it, this is quietly gone, I think, very poorly for them. And Mm then just like with the White Sox, these things can change overnight. Players can surprise you when they're young. There's talent in the Marlins organization, but just based on Brinson alone, he he was the thing for me that, they would have to root for it and he's he's been a catastrophe this year mm-hmm. and as for other mm-hmm. teams i mean ugh, the giants that just sucks mm-hmm. yeah i mean i guess there's the angels just in that they had a really exciting offseason i think i picked them as like my most likely disappointment or something coming to the season but i think i probably also picked them to be a wild card team i don't know i i try to forget what i predicted as soon as someone makes me do it but mm-hmm. i think there was a lot of hope for them coming into this year and they were exciting and watchable in a lot of ways certainly with individual players but you know another mike trout missed the postseason 
didn't really probably change their future or what we thought of them going forward, but this was supposed to be the year where things came together, and it certainly did not. They are in fourth place by quite a bit. Yeah. Okay, so two more prompts. We can do this quickly. One, is there anything in particular we learned about Mike Trout this year? Well, I think the most notable thing with him was the defense, and that was what really struck me. I I wrote about it earlier in the year, but it really seemed like he just decided to be better at defense, and that was it. (laughs) Like, you know, and we've seen him do this time after time where he identifies a weakness and then quickly makes it into a strength or at least not a weakness anymore. He did it with his arm. He did it with hitting high fastballs. He did it with maybe being too passive early in plate appearances or at least against certain pitch types. I mean, he's always changing and improving, but this one I think was maybe the most surprising or impressive to me because I just figured, you know, his defensive stats for the the past couple of years just had not been that great relative to center fielders. And I figured, well, you know, maybe he's just no longer kind of great at everything he's just he's become an even better hitter he's still the best player in baseball but maybe he's no longer a standout defender and no it turns out that he really kind of is and just because he decided he was just gonna go all out and he was really going to focus on this and get good jumps and you know do everything he could to maximize his defensive ability and right now he ranks 16th among all outfielders in outs above average so you know he's maybe not Harrison Bader but he is really really fantastic as a center fielder despite also being the best hitter in baseball yeah so for Trout I think one thing that's funny to me is he's got a career high rate of contact when swinging at pitches in the zone career low mm. rate of contact when yeah, swinging at pitches too. out of the right. zone so that is interesting to me because as it happens you wouldn't think this would be possible but last season Mike Trout had what was then a career high in WRC plus and this season <laughs> yeah. he has a career high in WRC plus he is yep. just getting better and another way he's getting better or at least not He's at least turning back the clock. So when when Trout was a rookie, he stole 49 bases out of 54 chances. That's really good. Mm-hmm. This year, he stole, he has stolen 24 bases, and he's been caught only two times. So at least according to Fangraph's numbers, it's his best stolen base season since he was a rookie. So just in so mm-hmm. many ways, the only thing that went wrong for Mike Trout the season, aside from, you know, the team he plays for, is that he got injured and missed some time. Because otherwise, yeah. this is, he would be having maybe, maybe the best season of his career. So, okay. Last thing, this is a prompt that you sent over. We'll do this quickly, but if mm-hmm. anything, is there anything that you regret writing this year? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and you know, I think the fact that less of my writing output is baseball-related now helps me in the sense that I, I rarely feel like I have to force a baseball piece, and so if I write one, it's like something I really want to write or believe in. You know, I, I don't feel like I'm just kind of stretching or pushing because I need to write something. So I think there are fewer of these for me this year. As you mentioned, we both wrote our pieces late in spring training about how home runs seem to be up again and would probably be up again, and they are not up again, but, you know, I don't feel too bad about that one because, whatever, they're barely down, and at least it showed that we were probably not going to get, like, a new ball that would wipe away all the homers or something, and it was about the three true outcomes, and those are up, so, eh, it's okay. On May 3rd, I wrote, is Pete Kershaw gone for good? And after I wrote that kind of, you know, not burying Kershaw, but just pointing out that he's not the same guy anymore. He had a 2.4 ERA in 112 and a third innings. Still really good. 103 strikeouts and 19 walks. 
But I think it was still fair to say that Pete Kershaw is gone for good. He's still not throwing as hard as he used to. He's throwing a lot more breaking balls and off-speed stuff. So, eh, I feel kind of okay about that one. And, you know, I noted in there that he could still be really effective even with diminished stuff. Last thing, I think. On April 27th, I wrote an article about Andrelton Simmons and Didi Gregorius, and <laughs> they were both off to amazing starts at that point. And from that day forward, Simmons had a 103 WRC+, and Didi had a 100 WRC+. So it's not like they cratered, but neither of them kept up their pace. But I feel okay about that one because they both ended up with like five win seasons. They were both really good. They were both better than they were last year. And it was kind of about how their careers mirror each other and they grew up playing together. And, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, their stats are amazing. They're the new best players in baseball. So those are some that, I don't know, I guess I might tweak a little if I could go back and rewrite them, but I'm not ashamed of them and wishing that they could be deleted from my archive. Right. I think you and I are both maybe out of necessity, we're fairly good about when we write our articles, we add a lot of qualifiers to them and we never take, you know, we just don't take positions. That's kind of the thing that, that we both do. So even when we write an article about a guy, I think we say enough to say like, well, you know, this might not keep up or this could just be a a short-term thing. So like, you know, we don't like publish bad hot takes is uh, one way to put Mm -hmm. it. But Mm -hmm. I'll say looking back, there are some, a few things one thing that jumps out to me, and this isn't something I regret, it's just funny the way it worked out. I remember back in when the Rays were doing their whole alleged teardown, something I wrote was that the when the Rays traded Steven Souza, they replaced him with Carlos Gomez, and I was amazed by how similar Souza and Gomez have looked in recent years. So I thought, oh, the Rays made that trade, they got some prospects, and they replaced Souza with like a, a similarly good baseball player. So this year, Carlos Gomez has been worth a war of negative 0.5. He's been really yeah. bad for the Rays, and Steven Souza for the Diamondbacks has a war of negative 0.5. So that one worked out, yeah. I guess. They've been identically <laughs> bad for both teams. So it wasn't wrong, but I was also completely wrong about how that one worked out. But mm-hmm. there are a few things that jumped out to me. So one... This is uh, in large part because of injury, but I was kind of a high guy early on on Aaron Sanchez. I thought he developed a pretty good changeup. I know Sanchez has had some injury problems this year, but Sanchez has thrown a lot more of his changeup this season. Almost a quarter of his pitches have been his changeup. I liked the way his changeup looked, and he's got the worst ERA of his life. He, uh, he's he got really bad numbers across the board. Aaron Sanchez has not worked out. I was the high guy on Lucas Giolito early in the year. I liked some things I saw from his mechanics. He's been dreadful. I even took the opportunity not too long ago to write another briefly positive article about Lucas Giolito yeah. because it looked like he had then made some changes during the season that uh, showed signs of progress, and he has been bad since then. So I'm just, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with Lucas Giolito. He is, uh, he could become good, but I'm not going to be the first guy to spot it. I'm just, I'm hands off to Lucas Giolito. I, uh, I learned yeah. my lesson. Around the trade deadline, I wrote something that was positive about Adam Conley, which I know is weird, but I thought, oh, look at this guy. He's like an interesting looking lefty reliever. It looks like he's really made a good adjustment to the bullpen. Yeah. Since I wrote that article, basically his ERA is five and a half. He sucked. So <laughs> my bad on Adam Conley. And the funniest thing, I think even at the time I knew this wasn't going to be real, but early in the season, Freddie Freeman like stopped swinging and I was like oh it looks like Freddie Freeman is Joey Votto now because they had like the same discipline profile Freeman just was taking pitches 
He wasn't that aggressive. And it's like, oh, my God, he's really turned it. He's got a career-high swing rate. This season, Freddie Freeman has swung 56% of all the pitches he's seen, which is more than any season before it has passed. He's just swung at, like, everything in the zone. Freddie Freeman is not Joey Votto now. Freddie Freeman is Freddie Freeman. He's a very aggressive hitter. He's a very good hitter. But that was that was the blip of all blips. It's like <laughs> uh-huh. that time when Ryan Goins became like a good hitter for three weeks. It's like there's no way. Yeah. But I wrote about that too. So unlike yeah, unlike you, Anthony I goes. Do it <laughs> Anthony goes exactly. That Another was, greatest. I, I've written of Jeff Sullivan. <laughs> uh, I thought Anthony goes could be something. I thought Carlos Peguero could be something. My bad. My bad. My bad. And my bad. I promise. My thought processes are always with the best intentions in mind. But I yeah. get a lot of things. I don't know if it's wrong, but definitely uh, hasty. Let's go with hasty. Well, you write a lot of posts, and you are often the first to be writing about a certain subject, so it takes some bravery to be the first into the breach and say that bad player is good now, but it helps you pick up on a lot of breakouts and surprising performances that other people write about later. So I think on the whole, it serves your readers well. And oh yeah, and I guess that's one more thing that I should throw out. This was written last offseason, last December. I had said my current favorite breakout pick, it was Cattell Marte. I liked a lot of oh, what yeah. I saw down the stretch. Cattell Marte, technically this season, pretty good season. WRC plus of 102. He was an average player, but he didn't really do anything special. <laughs> he didn't really break out. He just got moderately better. So on the one hand, hey, I picked a guy who is better than his projections. But on the other hand, no, he's uh, yeah. he's lost playing time to Daniel Descalso. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure we will talk much more about the 2018 season as we go on, but it's been a fun one and uh, looking forward to the playoffs. So on Monday, we will have a guest and we will preview the playoffs with him and maybe with each other and we'll set up all of the matchups and it'll be fun. So enjoy the last weekend and root for NL chaos and tiebreakers and we will reconvene next week. Okay. By the way, following up on a story we have discussed previously, Melissa Reedy Russell, the ex-wife of Addison Russell, expanded on her public comments. She spoke to Jesse Rogers of ESPN about why she has decided to speak out now. There's some pretty powerful statements in there. And Russell's paid administrative leave has been extended through the end of the regular season. One would think that a suspension will be forthcoming. But regardless of what happens with Russell, Reedy Russell's comments are worth reading for everyone. So I will link to those. Go check them out. I should also note that Jacob deGrom did it. According to Baseball Reference, he has 10.1 wins above replacement to go with his 10 wins. So he just barely, barely crept over there, but he did it. You have to count his hitting value, but you should. So Jacob deGrom becomes the second qualified pitcher ever after Eddie Smith in 1937 to finish with more war than wins. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Patrick Green, Joe Mielenhausen, George Bremer, Nick Wilwert, and Matthew Whitrock. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. We're approaching 8,500 members. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms if they allow reviews and ratings. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming. I don't know when we'll get to them, but we will continue to do email shows during the playoffs, just maybe on a slightly different schedule. You can email us at podcast at fangraphs.com 
or message us through the Patreon site if you are a supporter. So thanks for sticking with us through yet another regular season, and thanks in advance for sticking with us through yet another postseason and offseason. This podcast never goes on hiatus. So have a wonderful weekend, and we will talk to you soon. Yeah.